What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Book 10, Chapter 23, Of War and Peace, Volume 3, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 10, Chapter 23 From Gorky, Bennigsen descended the high road to the bridge, which, when they had looked at it from the hill, the officer had pointed out as being the center of our position, and where rows of fragrant new-mown hay lay by the riverside. They rode across that bridge into the village of Borodino and thence turned to the left, passing an enormous number of troops and guns, and came to a high knoll where militiamen were digging. This was the redoubt as yet unnamed, which afterwards became known as the Rayevsky Redoubt or the Knoll Battery, but Pierre paid no special attention to it. He did not know that it would become more memorable to him than any other spot on the plain of Borodino. They then crossed the hollow to Semenovsk, where the soldiers were dragging away the last logs from the huts and barns. Then they rode downhill and uphill, across a rye-field trodden and beaten down as if by hail, following a track freshly made by the artillery over the furrows of the ploughed land, and reached some fleshes, a kind of entrenchment, which were still being dug. At the fleshes, Bennigsen stopped and began looking at the Chevardino redoubt opposite, which had been ours the day before, and where several horsemen could be descried. The officer said that either Napoleon or Murat was there, and they all gazed eagerly at this little group of horsemen. Pierre also looked at them, trying to guess which of the scarcely discernible figures was Napoleon. At last those mounted men rode away from the mound and disappeared. Bennigsen spoke to a general who approached him, and began explaining the whole position of our troops. Pierre listened to him, straining each faculty to understand the essential points of the impending battle, but was mortified to feel that his mental capacity was inadequate for the task. He could make nothing of it. Bennigsen stopped speaking, and noticing that Pierre was listening, suddenly said to him, "'I don't think this interests you.' "'On the contrary, it's very interesting,' replied Pierre, not quite truthfully. From the fleshes 
they rode still farther to the left, along a road winding through a thick, low-growing birch-wood. In the middle of the wood a brown hare with white feet sprang out, and scared by the tramp of the many horses, grew so confused that it leaped along the road in front of them for some time, arousing general attention and laughter, and only when several voices shouted at it did it dart to one side and disappear in the thicket. After going through the wood for about a mile and a half, they came out on a glade where troops of Tuchkov's corps were stationed to defend the left flank. Here, at the extreme left flank, Bennigsen talked a great deal and with much heat, and as it seemed to Pierre, gave orders of great military importance. In front of Tuchkov's troops was some high ground not occupied by troops. Benningson loudly criticized this mistake, saying that it was madness to leave a height which commanded the country around unoccupied and to place troops below it. Some of the generals expressed the same opinion. One in particular declared with martial heat that they were put there to be slaughtered. Benningson, on his own authority, ordered the troops to occupy the high ground. This disposition on the left flank increased Pierre's doubt of his own capacity to understand military matters. Listening to Benningson and the generals criticizing the position of the troops behind the hill, he quite understood them and shared their opinion, but for that very reason he could not understand how the man who put them there behind the hill could have made so gross and palpable a blunder. Pierre did not know that these troops were not, as Benningson supposed, put there to defend the position, but were in a concealed position as an ambush that they should not be seen and might be able to strike an approaching enemy unexpectedly. Benningson did not know this and moved the troops forward according to his own ideas, without mentioning the matter to the commander-in-chief. End of Book Ten, Chapter Twenty-Three Book Ten, Chapter Twenty-Four Of War and Peace Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Twenty Four. On that bright evening of August twenty-fifth, Prince Andrew lay leaning on his elbow in a broken-down shed in the village of Knyazkovo at the further end of his regiment's encampment. Through a gap in the broken wall, he could see beside the wooden fence a row of thirty-year-old birches with their lower branches lopped off. A field on which shocks of oats were standing, and some bushes near which rose the smoke of campfires, the soldiers' kitchens. Narrow and burdensome and useless to anyone, as his life now seemed to him, Prince Andrew on the eve of battle felt agitated and irritable, as he had done seven years before at Austerlitz. He had received and given the orders for next day's battle, and had nothing more to do. But his thoughts, the simplest, clearest, and therefore most terrible thoughts, would give him no peace. He knew that tomorrow's battle would be the most terrible of all he had taken part in, and for the first time in his life the possibility of death presented itself to him not in relation to any worldly matter or with reference to its effect on others, but simply in relation to himself, to his own soul, vividly, plainly, terribly, and almost as a certainty. And from the height of this perception 
all that had previously tormented and preoccupied him suddenly became illumined by a cold white light without shadows, without perspective, without distinction of outline. All life appeared to him like magic lantern pictures at which he had long been gazing by artificial light through a glass. Now he suddenly saw those badly daubed pictures in clear daylight and without a glass. Yes, yes, there they are, those false images that agitated, enraptured, and tormented me," said he to himself, passing in review the principal pictures of the magic lantern of life and regarding them now in the cold white daylight of his clear perception of death. There they are, those rudely painted figures that once seemed splendid and mysterious. Glory, the good of society, love of a woman, the fatherland itself. How important these pictures appeared to me! With what profound meaning they seemed to be filled! And it is all so simple, pale, and crude in the cold white light of this morning which I feel is dawning for me. The great sorrows of his life held his attention in particular. His love for a woman, his father's death, and the French invasion which had overrun half Russia. Love! That little girl who seemed to me brimming over with mystic forces! Yes, indeed, I loved her. I made romantic plans of love and happiness with her. Oh, what a boy I was! he said aloud bitterly. Ah, me! I believed in some ideal love which was to keep her faithful to me for the whole year of my absence. Like the gentle dove in the fable, she was to pine apart from me. But it was much simpler, really. It was all very simple and horrible. When my father built Bald Hills, he thought the place was his, his land, his air, his peasants. But Napoleon came and swept him aside unconscious of his existence, as he might brush a chip from his path, and his bald hills and his whole life fell to pieces. Princess Mary says it is a trial sent from above. What is the trial for, when he is not here and will never return? He is not here. For whom, then, is the trial intended? The fatherland, the destruction of Moscow. And tomorrow I shall be killed perhaps not even by a Frenchman, but by one of our own men, by a soldier discharging a musket close to my ear, as one of them did yesterday, and the French will come and take me by head and heels and fling me into a hole that I may not stink under their noses, and new conditions of life will arise, which will seem quite ordinary to others, and about which I shall know nothing. I shall not exist." He looked at the row of birches shining in the sunshine, with their motionless green and yellow foliage and white bark. To die, to be killed tomorrow, that I should not exist, that all this should still be but no me. And the birches with their light and shade, the curly clouds, the smoke of the campfires, and all that was around him changed, and seemed terrible and menacing. A cold shiver ran down his spine. He rose quickly, went out of the shed, and began to walk about. After he had returned, voices were heard outside the shed. "'Who's that?' he cried. 
the red-nosed Captain Timokhin, formerly Dolokhov's squadron commander, but now, from lack of officers, a battalion commander, shyly entered the shed, followed by an adjutant and the regimental paymaster. Prince Andrew rose hastily, listened to the business they had come about, gave them some further instructions, and was about to dismiss them, when he heard a familiar lisping voice behind the shed. "'Devil take it!' said the voice of a man stumbling over something. Prince Andrew looked out of the shed and saw Pierre, who had tripped over a pole on the ground and had nearly fallen, coming his way. It was unpleasant to Prince Andrew to meet people of his own set in general, and Pierre especially, for he reminded him of all the painful moments of his last visit to Moscow. "'You? What a surprise!' said he. "'What brings you here? This is unexpected.' As he said this, his eyes and face expressed more than coldness. They expressed hostility, which Pierre noticed at once. He had approached the shed full of animation, but on seeing Prince Andrew's face he felt constrained and ill at ease. "'I have come—simply, you know—come—it interests me,' said Pierre, who had so often that day senselessly repeated that word interesting. "'I wish to see the battle.' "'Oh, yes. And what do the Masonic brothers say about war? How would they stop it?' said Prince Andrew sarcastically. "'Well, and how's Moscow? And my people? Have they reached Moscow at last?' he asked seriously. "'Yes, they have. Julie Drubetskaya told me so. I went to see them, but missed them. They have gone to your estate near Moscow.' End of Book Ten, Chapter Twenty-Four Book Ten, Chapter Twenty-Five, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Twenty-Five. The officers were about to take leave, but Prince Andrew, apparently reluctant to be left alone with his friend, asked them to stay and have tea. Seats were brought in, and so was the tea. The officers gazed with surprise at Pierre's huge, stout figure, and listened to his talk of Moscow and the position of our army, round which he had ridden. Prince Andrew remained silent, and his expression was so forbidding that Pierre addressed his remarks chiefly to the good-natured battalion commander. "'So you understand the whole position of our troops?' Prince Andrew interrupted him. "'Yes, that is, how do you mean?' said Pierre. Not being a military man, I can't say I have understood it fully, but I understand the general position. "'Well, then, you know more than anyone else, be it who it may,' said Prince Andrew. "'Oh,' said Pierre, looking over his spectacles in perplexity at Prince Andrew. "'Well, and what do you think of Kutuzov's appointment?' he asked. "'I was very glad of his appointment, that's all I know,' replied Prince Andrew and tell me your opinion of Barclay de Tully. In Moscow they are saying heaven knows what about him. What do you think of him?' "'Ask them,' replied Prince Andrew, indicating the officers. Pierre looked at Timokhin with the condescendingly interrogative smile with which everybody involuntarily addressed that officer. "'We see light again, since his serenity has been appointed, Your Excellency,' 
said Timokhin timidly, and continually turning to glance at his colonel. "'Why so?' asked Pierre. "'Well, to mention only firewood and fodder, let me inform you. Why, when we were retreating from Sveziani, we dare not touch a stick or a wisp of hay or anything. You see, we were going away, so he would get it all. Wasn't it so, Your Excellency?' And again Timokhin turned to the prince. "'But we daren't. In our regiment two officers were court-martialed for that kind of thing. But when His Serenity took command everything became straightforward. Now we see light.' "'Then why was it forbidden?' Timokhin looked about in confusion, not knowing what or how to answer such a question. Pierre put the same question to Prince Andrew. "'Why, so as not to lay waste the country we were abandoning to the enemy,' said Prince Andrew, with venomous irony. "'It is very sound. One can't permit the land to be pillaged and accustom the troops to marauding.' At Smolensk, too, he judged correctly that the French might outflank us, as they had larger forces. "'But he could not understand this!' cried Prince Andrew, in a shrill voice that seemed to escape him involuntarily. "'He could not understand that, there, for the first time, we were fighting for Russian soil, and that there was a spirit in the men such as I had never seen before, that we had held the French for two days, and that that success had increased our strength tenfold.' He ordered us to retreat, and all our efforts and losses went for nothing. He had no thought of betraying us. He tried to do the best he could. He thought out everything, and that is why he is unsuitable. He is unsuitable now, just because he plans out everything very thoroughly and accurately as every German has to. How can I explain? Well, say your father has a German valet and he is a splendid valet and satisfies your father's requirements better than you could, then it's all right to let him serve. But if your father is mortally sick, you'll send the valet away and attend to your father with your own unpractised, awkward hands, and will soothe him better than a skilled man who is a stranger could. So it has been with Barclay. While Russia was well, a foreigner could serve her and be a splendid minister but as soon as she is in danger she needs one of her own kin. But in your club they have been making him out a traitor. They slander him as a traitor, and the only result will be that, afterwards, ashamed of their false accusations, they will make him out a hero or a genius instead of a traitor, and that will be still more unjust. He is an honest and very punctilious German." "'And they say he's a skillful commander,' rejoined Pierre. I don't understand what is meant by a skillful commander," replied Prince Andrew ironically. "'A skillful commander?' replied Pierre. "'Why, one who foresees all contingencies, and foresees the adversary's intentions.' "'But that's impossible,' said Prince Andrew, as if it were a matter settled long ago. Pierre looked at him in surprise. "'And yet they say that war is like a game of chess,' he remarked. "'Yes,' replied Prince Andrew, "'but with this little difference, that in chess you may think over each move as long as you please, and are not limited for time, and with this difference, too, that a knight is always stronger than a pawn, and two pawns are always stronger than one, while in war a battalion is sometimes stronger than a division, and sometimes weaker than a company. 
the relative strength of bodies of troops can never be known to anyone. Believe me, he went on, if things depended on arrangements made by the staff, I should be there making arrangements. But instead of that, I have the honor to serve here in the regiment with these gentlemen. And I consider that on us tomorrow's battle will depend, and not on those others. Success never depends, and never will depend, on position, or equipment, or even on numbers, and least of all, on position. But on what, then? On the feeling that is in me and in him, he pointed to Timokhin, and in each soldier. Prince Andrew glanced at Timokhin, who looked at his commander in alarm and bewilderment. In contrast to his former reticent taciturnity, Prince Andrew now seemed excited. He could, apparently, not refrain from expressing the thoughts that had suddenly occurred to him. A battle is won by those who firmly resolve to win it. Why did we lose the battle at Austerlitz? The French losses were almost equal to ours, but very early we said to ourselves that we were losing the battle, and we did lose it. And we said so because we had nothing to fight for there. We wanted to get away from the battlefield as soon as we could. We've lost, so let us run and we ran. If we had not said that till the evening, heaven knows what might not have happened. But tomorrow we shan't say it. You talk about our position, the left flank weak and the right flank too extended, he went on. That's all nonsense. There's nothing of the kind. But what awaits us tomorrow? A hundred million most diverse chances which will be decided on the instant by the fact that our men or theirs run or do not run and that this man or that man is killed, but all that is being done at the present is only play. The fact is that those men with whom you have ridden round the position not only do not help matters, but hinder. They are concerned with their own petty interests." "'At such a moment?' said Pierre reproachfully. "'At such a moment!' Prince Andrew repeated. To them, it is only a moment affording opportunities to undermine a rival and obtain an extra cross or ribbon. For me, tomorrow means this. A Russian army of a hundred thousand and a French army of a hundred thousand have met to fight, and the thing is that these two hundred thousand men will fight, and the side that fights more fiercely and spares itself least will win. And if you like, I will tell you that whatever happens, and whatever muddles those at the top may make, we shall win tomorrow's battle. Tomorrow, happen what may, we shall win." "'There now, Your Excellency, that's the truth, the real truth,' said Timokhin. "'Who would spare himself now? The soldiers in my battalion, believe me, wouldn't drink their vodka. It's not the day for that, they say.' All were silent. The officers rose. Prince Andrew went out of the shed with them, giving final orders to the adjutant. After they had gone, Pierre approached Prince Andrew and was about to start a conversation when they heard the clatter of three horses' hoofs on the road not far from the shed, and looking in that direction Prince Andrew recognized Volzigen and Clausewitz, accompanied by a Cossack. They rode close by, continuing to converse, and Prince Andrew involuntarily heard these words. Der Krieg mussen Raum verlegt werden. Der Ansicht kann ich nicht genug preisgeben. The war must be extended widely. I cannot sufficiently commend that view, said one of them. Oh, ja, said the other. Der Zweck ist nur den Feind zu schwachen. 
so kann man gewiss nicht den Verlust der Privatpersonen in Acht zu nehmen. Oh, yes, the only aim is to weaken the enemy, so, of course, one cannot take into account the loss of private individuals. Oh, no, agreed the other. Extend widely, said Prince Andrew with an angry snort when they had ridden past. In that extend were my father, son, and sister at Bald Hills. That's all the same to him. That's what I was saying to you. Those German gentlemen won't win the battle tomorrow, but will only make all the mess they can, because they have nothing in their German heads but theories not worth an empty eggshell, and haven't in their hearts the one thing needed tomorrow. That which Tomokin has. They have yielded up all Europe to him, and have now come to teach us. Fine teachers! And again his voice grew shrill. So you think we shall win tomorrow's battle? asked Pierre. Yes, yes, answered Prince Andrew absently. One thing I would do if I had the power, he began again. I would not take prisoners. Why take prisoners? It's chivalry. The French have destroyed my home and are on their way to destroy Moscow. They have outraged and are outraging me every moment. They are my enemies. In my opinion, they are all criminals. And so thinks Timokhin and the whole army. They should be executed. Since they are my foes, they cannot be my friends, whatever may have been said at Tilsit. Yes, yes, muttered Pierre, looking with shining eyes at Prince Andrew. I quite agree with you. The question that had perturbed Pierre on the Mogesk hill and all that day now seemed to him quite clear and completely solved. He now understood the whole meaning and importance of this war, and of the impending battle. All he had seen that day, all the significant and stern expressions on the faces he had seen in passing, were lit up for him by a new light. He understood that latent heat, as they say in physics, of patriotism which was present in all these men he had seen, and this explained to him why they all prepared for death calmly, and, as it were, light-heartedly. Not take prisoners, Prince Andrew continued. That by itself would quite change the whole war and make it less cruel. As it is, we have played at war. That's what's vile. We play at magnanimity and all that stuff. Such magnanimity and sensibility are like the magnanimity and sensibility of a lady who faints when she sees a calf being killed. She is so kind-hearted that she can't look at blood, but enjoys eating the calf served up with sauce. They talk to us of the rules of war, of chivalry, of flags of truce, of mercy to the unfortunate, and so on. It's all rubbish. I saw chivalry and flags of truce in 1805. They humbugged us, and we humbugged them. They plunder other people's houses, issue false paper money, and worst of all, they kill my children and my father and then talk of rules of war and magnanimity to foes. Take no prisoners, but kill and be killed. He who has come to this as I have through the same sufferings—' Prince Andrew, who had thought it was all the same to him, whether or not Moscow was taken as Smolensk had been, was suddenly checked in his speech by an unexpected cramp in his throat. He paced up and down a few times in silence, but his eyes glittered feverishly and his lips quivered as he began speaking. If there was none of this magnanimity in war, we should go to war only when it was worth while going to certain death, as now. Then there would not be war because Paul Ivanovitch had offended Michael Ivanovitch. And when there was a war, like this one, 
It would be war. And then the determination of the troops would be quite different. Then all these Westphalians and Hessians whom Napoleon is leading would not follow him into Russia, and we should not go to fight in Austria and Prussia without knowing why. War is not courtesy, but the most horrible thing in life. We ought to understand that and not play at war. We ought to accept this terrible necessity sternly and seriously. It all lies in that. Get rid of falsehood, and let war be war, and not a game. As it is now, war is the favorite pastime of the idle and frivolous. The military calling is the most highly honored. But what is war? What is needed for success in warfare? What are the habits of the military? The aim of war is murder. The methods of war are spying, treachery, and their encouragement, the ruin of a country's inhabitants, robbing them or stealing to provision the army, and fraud and falsehood termed military craft. The habits of the military class are the absence of freedom, that is, discipline, idleness, ignorance, cruelty, debauchery, and drunkenness. And in spite of all this, it is the highest class, respected by everyone. All the kings, except the Chinese, wear military uniforms, and he who kills most people receives the highest rewards. They meet, as we shall meet tomorrow, to murder one another. They kill and maim tens of thousands, and then have thanksgiving services for having killed so many people, they even exaggerate the number, and they announce a victory, supposing that the more people they have killed, the greater their achievement. "'How does God above look at them and hear them?' exclaimed Prince Andrew in a shrill, piercing voice. "'Ah, my friend, it has of late become hard for me to live. I see that I have begun to understand too much, and it doesn't do for man to taste of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Ah, well, it's not for long,' he added. "'However, you're sleepy, and it's time for me to sleep. Go back to Gorky.' said Prince Andrew suddenly. "'Oh, no,' Pierre replied, looking at Prince Andrew with frightened, compassionate eyes. "'Go, go! Before a battle one must have one sleep out,' repeated Prince Andrew. He came quickly up to Pierre and embraced and kissed him. "'Good-bye! Be off!' he shouted. "'Whether we meet again or not,' and turning away hurriedly, he entered the shed. It was already dark and Pierre could not make out whether the expression of Prince Andrew's face was angry or tender. For some time he stood in silence, considering whether he should follow him or go away. "'No, he does not want it,' Pierre concluded. "'And I know that this is our last meeting.' He sighed deeply and rode back to Gorky. On re-entering the shed, Prince Andrew lay down on a rug, but he could not sleep. He closed his eyes. One picture succeeded another in his imagination. On one of them he dwelt long and joyfully. He vividly recalled an evening in Petersburg. Natasha, with animated and excited face, was telling him how she had gone to look for mushrooms the previous summer and had lost her way in the big forest. She incoherently described the depths of the forest, her feelings, and a talk with a beekeeper she met, and constantly interrupted her story to say, no, I can't. I'm not telling it right. No, you don't understand." Though he encouraged her by saying that he did understand, and he really had understood all she wanted to say. 
but Natasha was not satisfied with her own words. She felt that they did not convey the passionately poetic feeling she had experienced that day and wished to convey. He was such a delightful old man, and it was so dark in the forest, and he had such kind—no, I can't describe it," she had said, flushed and excited. Prince Andrew smiled now, the same happy smile as then, when he had looked into her eyes. I understood her, he thought. I not only understood her, but it was just that inner spiritual force, that sincerity, that frankness of soul, that very soul of hers which seemed to be fettered by her body. It was that soul I loved in her, loved so strongly and happily. And suddenly he remembered how his love had ended. He did not need anything of that kind. He neither saw nor understood anything of the sort. He only saw in her a pretty and fresh young girl, with whom he did not deign to unite his fate. And I? And he is still alive and gay. Prince Andrew jumped up as if someone had burned him, and again began pacing up and down in front of the shed. End of Book Ten, Chapter Twenty Five Book Ten, Chapter Twenty Six of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Twenty Six. On August Twenty Fifth, the eve of the Battle of Borodino, Monsieur de Bosset, Prefect of the French Emperor's Palace, arrived at Napoleon's quarters at Valuevo with Colonel Favier the former from Paris and the latter from Madrid. Donning his court uniform, Monsieur de Bosset ordered a box he had brought for the Emperor to be carried before him, and entered the first compartment of Napoleon's tent, where he began opening the box while conversing with Napoleon's aides-de-camp who surrounded him. Favier, not entering the tent, remained at the entrance talking to some generals of his acquaintance. The Emperor Napoleon had not yet left his bedroom and was finishing his toilette. Slightly snorting and grunting, he presented now his back and now his plump hairy chest to the brush with which his valet was rubbing him down. Another valet, with his finger over the mouth of a bottle, was sprinkling eau de cologne on the Emperor's pampered body, with an expression which seemed to say that he alone knew where and how much eau de cologne should be sprinkled. Napoleon's short hair was wet and matted on the forehead, but his face, though puffy and yellow, expressed physical satisfaction. "'Go on. Harder. Go on,' he muttered to the valet who was rubbing him, slightly twitching and grunting. An aide-de-camp, who had entered the bedroom to report to the Emperor the number of prisoners taken in yesterday's action, was standing by the door after delivering his message, awaiting permission to withdraw. Napoleon, frowning, looked at him from under his brows. "'No prisoners,' said he, repeating the aide-de-camp's words. "'They are forcing us to exterminate them. So much the worse for the Russian army.' "'Go on! Harder! Harder!' he muttered, hunching his back and presenting his fat shoulders. "'All right. Let Monsieur de Bosset enter, and Favier too,' he said, nodding to the aide-de-camp. "'Yes, sire.' and the aide-de-camp disappeared through the door of the tent. Two valets rapidly dressed His Majesty, 
and wearing the blue uniform of the guards he went with firm quick steps to the reception room. De Bosset's hands, meanwhile, were busily engaged arranging the present he had brought from the Empress, on two chairs directly in front of the entrance. But Napoleon had dressed and come out with such unexpected rapidity that he had not time to finish arranging the surprise. Napoleon noticed at once what they were about, and guessed that they were not ready. He did not wish to deprive them of the pleasure of giving him a surprise, so he pretended not to see de Bosset, and called Favier to him, listening silently and with a stern frown to what Favier told him of the heroism and devotion of his troops fighting at Salamanca, at the other end of Europe, with but one thought, to be worthy of their emperor, and but one fear, to fail to please him. The result of that battle had been deplorable. Napoleon made ironic remarks during Favier's account, as if he had not expected that matters could go otherwise in his absence. "'I must make up for that in Moscow,' said Napoleon. "'I'll see you later,' he added, and summoned de Bosset, who by that time had prepared the surprise, having placed something on the chairs and covered it with a cloth. De Bosset bowed low with that courtly French bow which only the old retainers of the Bourbons knew how to make, and approached him presenting an envelope. Napoleon turned to him gaily and pulled his ear. "'You have hurried here. I am very glad. Well, what is Paris saying?' he asked, suddenly changing his former stern expression for a most cordial tone. "'Sire, all Paris regrets your absence,' replied de Bosset, as was proper." But though Napoleon knew that de Bosset had to say something of this kind, and though in his lucid moments he knew it was untrue, he was pleased to hear it from him. Again he honoured him by touching his ear. "'I am very sorry to have made you travel so far,' said he. "'Sire, I expected nothing less than to find you at the gates of Moscow,' replied de Bosset. Napoleon smiled and, lifting his head absent-mindedly, glanced to the right. An aide-de-camp approached with gliding steps and offered him a gold snuff-box which he took. "'Yes, it has happened luckily for you,' he said, raising the open snuff-box to his nose. "'You are fond of travel, and in three days you will see Moscow.' "'You surely did not expect to see that Asiatic capital. You will have a pleasant journey.' De Bosset bowed gratefully at this regard for his taste for travel, of which he had not till then been aware. "'Ha! What's this?' asked Napoleon, noticing that all the courtiers were looking at something concealed under a cloth. With courtly adroitness de Bosset half-turned, and without turning his back to the Emperor, retired two steps, twitching off the cloth at the same time, and said, "'A present to Your Majesty from the Empress!' It was a portrait, painted in bright colours by Gerard, of the son born to Napoleon by the daughter of the Emperor of Austria, the boy whom for some reason everyone called the King of Rome. A very pretty curly-headed boy with a look of the Christ and the Sistine Madonna was depicted playing at stick and ball. The ball represented the terrestrial globe, and the stick in his other hand a scepter though it was not clear what the artist meant to express by depicting the so-called king of rome spiking the earth with a stick 
the allegory apparently seemed to Napoleon, as it had done to all who had seen it in Paris, quite clear and very pleasing. "'The King of Rome,' he said, pointing to the portrait with a graceful gesture. "'Admirable!' With the natural capacity of an Italian for changing the expression of his face at will, he drew nearer to the portrait and assumed a look of pensive tenderness. He felt that what he now said and did would be historical, and it seemed to him that it would now be best for him, whose grandeur enabled his son to play stick and ball with the terrestrial globe, to show, in contrast to that grandeur, the simplest paternal tenderness. His eyes grew dim, he moved forward, glanced round at a chair, which seemed to place itself under him, and sat down on it before the portrait. At a single gesture from him everyone went out on tiptoe, leaving the great man to himself and his emotion. Having sat still for a while he touched, himself not knowing why, the thick spot of paint representing the highest light in the portrait, rose and recalled de Bosset and the officer on duty. He ordered the portrait to be carried outside his tent, that the old guard, stationed round it, might not be deprived of the pleasure of seeing the King of Rome, the son and heir of their adored monarch. And while he was doing Monsieur de Bosset the honour of breakfasting with him, they heard, as Napoleon had anticipated, the rapturous cries of the officers and men of the old guard who had run up to see the portrait. "'Vive l'Empereur! Vive le roi de Rome! Vive l'Empereur!' came those ecstatic cries. After breakfast, Napoleon and de Bosset's presence dictated his order of the day to the army. "'Short and energetic,' he remarked when he had read over the proclamation which he had dictated straight off without corrections. It ran, "'Soldiers, this is the battle you have so longed for. Victory depends on you. It is essential for us. It will give us all we need, comfortable quarters and a speedy return to our country.' Behave as you did at Austerlitz, Friedland, Videpsk, and Smolensk. Let our remotest posterity recall your achievements this day with pride. Let it be said of each of you, he was in the great battle before Moscow." "'Before Moscow,' repeated Napoleon. And, inviting Monsieur de Bosset, who was so fond of travel, to accompany him on his ride, he went out of the tent to where the horses stood saddled. "'Your Majesty is too kind,' replied de Bosset to the invitation to accompany the Emperor. He wanted to sleep, did not know how to ride, and was afraid of doing so. But Napoleon nodded to the traveller, and de Bosset had to mount. When Napoleon came out of the tent the shouting of the guards before his son's portrait grew still louder. Napoleon frowned. "'Take him away!' he said, pointing with a gracefully majestic gesture to the portrait. It is too soon for him to see a field of battle." De Bosset closed his eyes, bowed his head, and sighed deeply, to indicate how profoundly he valued and comprehended the Emperor's words. End of Book Ten, Chapter Twenty-Six Book Ten, Chapter Twenty Seven of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, 
Chapter 27 On the 25th of August, so his historians tell us, Napoleon spent the whole day on horseback inspecting the locality, considering plans submitted to him by his marshals, and personally giving commands to his generals. The original line of the Russian forces along the river Kolacha had been dislocated by the capture of the Shevardino Redoubt on the 24th, and part of the line, the left flank, had been drawn back. That part of the line was not entrenched, and in front of it the ground was more open and level than elsewhere. It was evident to anyone, military or not, that it was here the French should attack. It would seem that not much consideration was needed to reach this conclusion, nor any particular care or trouble on the part of the Emperor and his marshals, nor was there any need of that special and supreme quality called genius that people are so apt to ascribe to Napoleon. Yet the historians who describe the event later, and the men who then surrounded Napoleon, and he himself, thought otherwise. Napoleon rode over the plain and surveyed the locality with a profound air and in silence, nodded with approval or shook his head dubiously, and without communicating to the generals around him the profound course of ideas which guided his decisions, merely gave them his final conclusions in the form of commands. Having listened to a suggestion from Davout, who was now called Prince d'Ecmule, to turn the Russian left wing, Napoleon said it should not be done without explaining why not. To a proposal made by General Campan, who was to attack the fleshes, to lead his division through the woods, Napoleon agreed, though the so-called Duke of Elchingen, nay, ventured to remark that a movement through the woods was dangerous and might disorder the division. Having inspected the country opposite the Chevardino Redoubt, Napoleon pondered a little in silence, and then indicated the spots where two batteries should be set up by the morrow to act against the Russian entrenchments, and the places where, in line with them, the field artillery should be placed. After giving these and other commands, he returned to his tent, and the dispositions for the battle were written down from his dictation. These dispositions, of which the French historians write with enthusiasm, and other historians with profound respect, were as follows. At dawn, the two batteries established during the night on the plain occupied by the Prince d'Ecmule will open fire on the opposing batteries of the enemy. At the same time, the commander of the artillery of the First Corps, General Pernetti, with thirty cannon of Campan's division and all the howitzers of Desaix's and Friant's divisions, will move forward, open fire, and overwhelm with shell-fire the enemy's battery, against which will operate twenty-four guns of the artillery of the guards, thirty guns of Campan's division, and eight guns of Friant's and Desaix's divisions, in all sixty-two guns. The commander of the artillery of the Third Corps, General Fouché, will place the howitzers of the Third and Eighth Corps, sixteen in all, on the flanks of the battery that is to bombard the entrenchment on the left, which will have forty guns in all directed against it. General Sorbier must be ready at the first order to advance with all the howitzers of the guard's artillery against either one or other of the entrenchments. During the cannonade, Prince Poniatowski is to advance through the wood on the village and turn the enemy's position. General Campan will move through the wood to seize the first fortification. After the advance has begun in this manner, orders will be given in accordance with the enemy's movements. The cannonade on the left flank will begin as soon as the guns of the right wing are heard. 
The sharpshooters of Moran's division and of the Vice-King's division will open a heavy fire on seeing the attack commence on the right wing. The Vice-King will occupy the village and cross by its three bridges, advancing to the same heights as Moran's and Jabbar's divisions, which, under his leadership, will be directed against the redoubt and come into line with the rest of the forces. All this must be done in good order. Lectus et fera ave audre et méthode, as far as possible retaining troops in reserve. The Imperial Camp near Mojesk, September 6, 1812. These dispositions, which are very obscure and confused if one allows oneself to regard the arrangements without religious awe of his genius, related to Napoleon's orders to deal with four points, four different orders. Not one of these was or could be carried out. In the disposition it was said first that the batteries placed on the spot chosen by Napoleon, with the guns of Pernetti and Fouché, which were to come in line with them, one hundred two guns in all, were to open fire and shower shells on the Russian fleshes and redoubts. This could not be done, as from the spot selected by Napoleon the projectiles did not carry to the Russian works, and those one hundred two guns shot into the air until the nearest commander, contrary to Napoleon's instructions, moved them forward. The second order was that Poniatowski, moving to the village through the wood, should turn the Russian left flank. This could not be done, and was not done, because Poniatowski, advancing on the village through the wood, met Tuchkov there barring his way, and could not and did not turn the Russian position. The third order was, General Campan will move through the wood to seize the first fortification. General Campan's division did not seize the first fortification, but was driven back, for on emerging from the wood it had to reform under grape-shot of which Napoleon was unaware. The fourth order was, the vice-king will occupy the village, Borodino, and cross by its three bridges, advancing to the same heights as Moran's and Girard's divisions, for whose movements no directions were given, which under his leadership will be directed against the redoubt and come into line with the rest of the forces. As far as one can make out, not so much from this unintelligible sentence, as from the attempts the vice-king made to execute the orders given him, he was to advance from the left through Borodino to the redoubt, while the divisions of Moran and Girard were to advance simultaneously from the front. All this, like the other parts of the disposition, was not and could not be executed. After passing through Borodino, the vice-king was driven back to the Kolachov and could get no farther while the divisions of Moran and Girard did not take the redoubt, but were driven back, and the redoubt was only taken at the end of the battle by the cavalry, a thing probably unforeseen and not heard of by Napoleon. So not one of the orders in the disposition was or could be executed. But in the disposition it is said that, after the fight has commenced in this manner, orders will be given in accordance with the enemy's movements, and so it might be supposed that all necessary arrangements would be made by Napoleon during the battle. But this was not and could not be done, for during the whole battle Napoleon was so far away that, as appeared later, he could not know the course of the battle and not one of his orders during the fight could be executed. End of Book 10, Chapter 27
Of War and Peace, Volume 3, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 10, Chapter 28 Many historians say that the French did not win the Battle of Borodino because Napoleon had a cold, and that if he had not had a cold the orders he gave before and during the battle would have been still more full of genius, and Russia would have been lost and the face of the world have been changed. To historians who believe that Russia was shaped by the will of one man, Peter the Great, and that France, from a republic, became an empire, and French armies went to Russia at the will of one man, Napoleon, to say that Russia remained a power because Napoleon had a bad cold on the 24th of August may seem logical and convincing. If it had depended on Napoleon's will to fight or not to fight the Battle of Borodino, and if this or that other arrangement depended on his will, then evidently a cold affecting the manifestation of his will might have saved Russia. And consequently, the valet who omitted to bring Napoleon his waterproof boots on the twenty-fourth would have been the savior of Russia. Along that line of thought, such a deduction is indubitable, as indubitable as the deduction Voltaire made in jest, without knowing what he was jesting at, when he saw that the massacre of St. Bartholomew was due to Charles the Ninth's stomach being deranged. But to men who do not admit that Russia was formed by the will of one man, Peter I, or that the French Empire was formed and the war with Russia begun by the will of one man, Napoleon, that argument seems not merely untrue and irrational, but contrary to all human reality. To the question of what causes historic events, another answer presents itself namely, that the course of human events is predetermined from on high, depends on the coincidence of the wills of all who take part in the events, and that a Napoleon's influence on the course of these events is purely external and fictitious. Strange as at first glance it may seem to suppose that the massacre of St. Bartholomew was not due to Charles the Ninth's will, though he gave the order for it, and thought it was done as a result of that order, and strange as it may seem to suppose that the slaughter of eighty thousand men at Borodino was not due to Napoleon's will, though he ordered the commencement and conduct of the battle, and thought it was done because he ordered it. Strange as these suppositions appear, yet human dignity, which tells me that each of us is, if not more, at least not less than a man than the great Napoleon, demands the acceptance of that solution of the question, and historic investigation abundantly confirms it. At the Battle of Borodino, Napoleon shot at no one and killed no one. That was all done by the soldiers. Therefore, it was not he who killed people. The French soldiers went to kill and be killed at the Battle of Borodino, not because of Napoleon's orders, but by their own volition. The whole army, French, Italian, German, Polish, and Dutch, hungry, ragged, and weary of the campaign, felt at the sight of an army blocking their road to Moscow that the wine was drawn and must be drunk. Had Napoleon then forbidden them to fight the Russians, they would have killed him, and have proceeded to fight the Russians because it was inevitable. When they heard Napoleon's proclamation offering them, as compensation for mutilation and death, the words of posterity about their having been in the battle before Moscow, they cried, Vive l'Empereur! 
just as they had cried Vive l'Empereur at the sight of the portrait of the boy piercing the terrestrial globe with a toy stick, and just as they would have cried Vive l'Empereur at any nonsense that might be told them. There was nothing left for them to do but cry Vive l'Empereur and go to fight, in order to get food and rest as conquerors in Moscow. So it was not because of Napoleon's commands that they killed their fellow men. And it was not Napoleon who directed the course of the battle, for none of his orders were executed, and during the battle he did not know what was going on before him. So the way in which these people killed one another was not decided by Napoleon's will, but occurred independently of him, in accord with the will of hundreds of thousands of people who took part in the common action. It only seemed to Napoleon that it all took place by his will. And so the question whether he had or had not a cold has no more historic interest than the cold of the least of the transport soldiers. Moreover, the assertion made by various writers that his cold was the cause of his dispositions not being as well planned as on former occasions, and of his orders during the battle not being as good as previously, is quite baseless which again shows that Napoleon's cold on the 26th of August was unimportant. The dispositions cited above are not at all worse, but are even better than previous dispositions by which he had won victories. His pseudo-orders during the battle were also no worse than formerly, but much the same as usual. These dispositions and orders only seem worse than previous ones because the Battle of Borodino was the first Napoleon did not win. The profoundest and most excellent dispositions and orders seem very bad, and every learned militarist criticizes them with looks of importance when they relate to a battle that has been lost, and the very worst dispositions and orders seem very good, and serious people fill whole volumes to demonstrate their merits when they relate to a battle that has been won. The dispositions drawn up by Weyroder for the Battle of Austerlitz were a model of perfection for that kind of composition but still they were criticized, criticized for their very perfection, for their excessive minuteness. Napoleon, at the Battle of Borodino, fulfilled his office as representative of authority as well as, and even better than, at other battles. He did nothing harmful to the progress of the battle. He inclined to the most reasonable opinions. He made no confusion, did not contradict himself, did not get frightened or run away from the field of battle, but with his great tact and military experience carried out his role of appearing to command, calmly and with dignity. End of Book Ten, Chapter Twenty Eight. Book Ten, Chapter Twenty Nine of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Twenty Nine. On returning from a second inspection of the lines, Napoleon remarked, "The chessmen are set up. The game will begin tomorrow." Having ordered punch and summoned de Bosset, he began to talk to him about Paris and about some changes he meant to make in the Empress household surprising the prefect by his memory of minute details relating to the court. He showed an interest in trifles, joked about de Bosset's love of travel, and chatted carelessly, 
as a famous, self-confident surgeon who knows his job does, when turning up his sleeves and putting on his apron while a patient is being strapped to the operating table. The matter is in my hands, and is clear and definite in my head. When the time comes to set to work, I shall do it as no one else could, but now I can jest, and the more I jest and the calmer I am, the more tranquil and confident you ought to be, and the more amazed at my genius." Having finished his second glass of punch, Napoleon went to rest before the serious business which he considered awaited him next day. He was so much interested in that task that he was unable to sleep, and in spite of his cold, which had grown worse from the dampness of the evening, he went into the large division of the tent at three o'clock in the morning, loudly blowing his nose. He asked whether the Russians had not withdrawn, and was told that the enemy's fires were still in the same places. He nodded approval. The adjutant in attendance came into the tent. "'Well, Rep, do you think we shall do good business today?' Napoleon asked him. "'Without a doubt, sire,' replied Rapp. Napoleon looked at him. "'Do you remember, sire, what you did me the honor to say at Smolensk?' continued Rapp. "'The wine is drawn and must be drunk.' Napoleon frowned and sat silent for a long time, leaning his head on his hand. "'This poor army,' he suddenly remarked, "'it has diminished greatly since Smolensk. Fortune is frankly a courtesan rap. I have always said so, and I am beginning to experience it. But the guards, rap, the guards are intact?' he remarked interrogatively. "'Yes, sire,' replied Rapp. Napoleon took a lozenge, put it in his mouth, and glanced at his watch. He was not sleepy, and it was still not nearly morning. It was impossible to give further orders for the sake of killing time, for the orders had all been given and were now being executed. "'Have the biscuits and rice been served out to the regiments of the guards?' asked Napoleon sternly. "'Yes, sire. The rice, too?' Rapp replied that he had given the Emperor's order about the rice, but Napoleon shook his head in dissatisfaction as if not believing that his order had been executed. An attendant came in with punch. Napoleon ordered another glass to be brought for Rapp, and silently sipped his own. "'I have neither taste nor smell,' he remarked, sniffing at his glass. "'This cold is tiresome. They talk about medicine.' What is the good of medicine when it can't cure a cold? Corvisar gave me these lozenges, but they don't help at all. What can doctors cure? One can't cure anything. Our body is a machine for living. It is organized for that. It is its nature. Let life go on in it unhindered, and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it with remedies. Our body is like a perfect watch that should go for a certain time. The watchmaker cannot open it, he can only adjust it by fumbling, and that blindfold. Yes, our body is just a machine for living, that is all." And having entered on the path of definition, of which he was fond, Napoleon suddenly and unexpectedly gave a new one. "'Do you know, Rapp, what military art is?' asked he. It is the art of being stronger than the enemy at a given moment. That's all." Rapp made no reply. 
tomorrow we shall have to deal with Kutuzov," said Napoleon. "'We shall see. Do you remember at Brunau he commanded an army for three weeks and did not once mount a horse to inspect his entrenchments? We shall see.' He looked at his watch. It was still only four o'clock. He did not feel sleepy. The punch was finished and there was still nothing to do. He rose, walked to and fro, put on a warm overcoat and a hat, and went out of the tent. The night was dark and damp, scarcely perceptible moisture was descending from above. Nearby the campfires were dimly burning among the French guards, and in the distance those of the Russian line shone through the smoke. The weather was calm, and the rustle and tramp of the French troops already beginning to move to take up their positions was clearly audible. Napoleon walked about in front of his tent, looked at the fires, and listened to these sounds, and as he was passing a tall guardsman in a shaggy cap, who was standing sentinel before his tent and had drawn himself up like a black pillar at sight of the Emperor, Napoleon stopped in front of him. "'What year did you enter the service?' he asked with that affectation of military bluntness and geniality with which he always addressed the soldiers. The man answered the question. "'Ah! one of the old ones. Has your regiment had its rice?' "'It has, Your Majesty.' Napoleon nodded and walked away. At half-past five Napoleon rode to the village of Chevardino. It was growing light, the sky was clearing, only a single cloud lay in the east. The abandoned campfires were burning themselves out in the faint morning light. On the right a single deep report of a cannon resounded and died away in the prevailing silence. Some minutes passed. A second and a third report shook the air, then a fourth and a fifth boomed solemnly nearby on the right. The first shots had not yet ceased to reverberate before others rang out, and yet more were heard mingling with and overtaking one another. Napoleon with his suite rode up to the Chevardino redoubt where he dismounted. The game had begun. End of Book Ten, Chapter Twenty Nine. Book Ten, Chapter Thirty, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Thirty. On returning to Gorky after having seen Prince Andrew, Pierre ordered his groom to get the horses ready and to call him early in the morning, and then immediately fell asleep behind a partition in a corner Boris had given up to him. Before he was thoroughly awake next morning, everybody had already left the hut. The panes were rattling in the little windows, and his groom was shaking him. Your Excellency, Your Excellency, Your Excellency he kept repeating pertinaciously while he shook Pierre by the shoulder without looking at him, having apparently lost hope of getting him to wake up. "'What? Has it begun? Is it time?' Pierre asked, waking up. "'Hear the firing,' said the groom, a discharged soldier. "'All the gentlemen have gone out, and His Serene Highness himself rode past long ago.' Pierre dressed hastily and ran out to the porch. Outside all was bright, fresh, dewy, and cheerful. The sun, just bursting forth from behind a cloud that had concealed it, was shining, with rays still half broken by the clouds, over the roofs of the street opposite, 
on the dew-besprinkled dust of the road, on the walls of the houses, on the windows, the fence, and on Pierre's horses standing before the hut. The roar of guns sounded more distinct outside. An adjutant accompanied by a Cossack passed by at a sharp trot. "'It's time, Count, it's time!' cried the adjutant. Telling the groom to follow him with the horses, Pierre went down the street to the knoll from which he had looked at the field of battle the day before. A crowd of military men was assembled there, members of the staff could be heard conversing in French, and Kutuzov's gray head in a white cap with a red band was visible, his gray nape sunk between his shoulders. He was looking through a field-glass down the high road before him. Mounting the steps to the knoll, Pierre looked at the scene before him, spellbound by beauty. It was the same panorama he had admired from that spot the day before, but now the whole place was full of troops, and covered by smoke-clouds from the guns, and the slanting rays of the bright sun, rising slightly to the left behind Pierre, cast upon it through the clear morning air penetrating streaks of rosy, golden-tinted light and long dark shadows. The forest at the farthest extremity of the panorama seemed carved in some precious stone of a yellowish-green color. Its undulating outline was silhouetted against the horizon, and was pierced beyond Valuevo by the Smolensk high-road crowded with troops. Near at hand glittered golden cornfields interspersed with copses. There were troops to be seen everywhere, in front and to the right and left. All this was vivid, majestic, and unexpected. But what impressed Pierre most of all was the view of the battlefield itself, of Borodino and the hollows on both sides of the Kolacha. Above the Kolacha, in Borodino and on both sides of it, especially to the left where the Vonya flowing between its marshy banks falls into the Kolacha, a mist had spread which seemed to melt, to dissolve, and to become translucent when the brilliant sun appeared and magically colored and outlined everything. The smoke of the guns mingled with this mist, and over the whole expanse and through that mist the rays of the morning sun were reflected, flashing back like lightning from the water, from the dew and from the bayonets of the troops crowded together by the river-banks and in Borodino. A white church could be seen through the mist, and here and there the roofs of huts in Borodino as well as dense masses of soldiers, or green ammunition-chests and ordnance. All this moved, or seemed to move, as the smoke and mist spread out over the whole space. Just as in the mist-enveloped hollow near Borodino, so along the entire line outside and above it, and especially in the woods and fields to the left, in the valleys and on the summits of the high ground, Clouds of powder-smoke seemed continually to spring up out of nothing, now singly, now several at a time, some translucent, others dense, which, swelling, growing, rolling and blending, extended over the whole expanse. These puffs of smoke, and, strange to say, the sound of the firing produced the chief beauty of the spectacle. Puff! Suddenly a round compact cloud of smoke was seen merging from violent into gray and milky white, and boom came the report a second later. Puff, puff! And two clouds arose pushing one another and blending together, and boom, boom! came the sounds confirming what the eye had seen. Pierre glanced round at the first cloud, which he had seen as a round compact ball 
and in its place already were balloons of smoke floating to one side, and— Puff! With a pause. Puff! Puff! Three and then four more appeared, and then from each, with the same interval, boom! 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 came the fine, firm, precise sounds in reply. It seemed as if those smoke-clouds sometimes ran and sometimes stood still, while the woods, fields and glittering bayonets ran past them. From the left, over fields and bushes, those large balls of smoke were continually appearing followed by their solemn reports, while nearer still, in the hollows and woods, there burst from the muskets small cloudlets that had no time to become balls, but had their little echoes in just the same way. Track, tack, 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 came the frequent crackle of musketry, but it was irregular and feeble in comparison with the reports of the cannon. Pierre wished to be there with that smoke, those shining bayonets, that movement, and those sounds. He turned to look at Kutuzov and his suite, to compare his impressions with those of others. They were all looking at the field of battle as he was, and, as it seemed to him, with the same feelings. All their faces were now shining with that latent warmth of feeling Pierre had noticed the day before, and had fully understood after his talk with Prince Andrew. "'Go, my dear fellow, go, and Christ be with you,' Kutuzov was saying to a general, who stood beside him, not taking his eye from the battlefield. Having received this order the general passed by Pierre on his way down the knoll. "'To the crossing,' said the general coldly and sternly, in reply to one of the staff who asked where he was going. "'I'll go there, too. I, too,' thought Pierre, and followed the general. The general mounted a horse a Cossack had brought him. Pierre went to his groom who was holding his horses, and, asking which was the quietest, clambered onto it, seized it by the mane, and, turning out his toes, pressed his heels against its sides, and feeling that his spectacles were slipping off, but unable to let go of the mane and reins, he galloped after the general, causing the staff officers to smile as they watched him from the knoll. End of Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Book Ten, Chapter Thirty One Of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Thirty One. Having descended the hill, the general, after whom Pierre was galloping, turned sharply to the left, and Pierre, losing sight of him, galloped in among some ranks of infantry marching ahead of him. He tried to pass either in front of them or to the right or left, but there were soldiers everywhere, all with the same preoccupied expression and busy with some unseen but evidently important task. They all gazed with the same dissatisfied and inquiring expression at this stout man in a white hat, who, for some unknown reason, threatened to trample them under his horse's hoofs. "'Why ride into the middle of the battalion?' one of them shouted at him. Another prodded his horse with the butt-end of a musket, and Pierre, bending over his saddle-bow and hardly able to control his shying horse, galloped ahead of the soldiers where there was a free space. There was a bridge ahead of him, where other soldiers stood firing. Pierre rode up to them. Without being aware of it, he had come to the bridge across the Kolacha between Gorky and Borodino, which the French, 
having occupied Borodino, were attacking in the first phase of the battle. Pierre saw that there was a bridge in front of him, and that soldiers were doing something on both sides of it, and in the meadow, among the rows of new-mown hay which he had taken no notice of amid the smoke of the campfires the day before. But despite the incessant firing going on there, he had no idea that this was the field of battle. He did not notice the sound of the bullets whistling from every side, or the projectiles that flew over him, did not see the enemy on the other side of the river, and for a long time did not notice the killed and wounded, though many fell near him. He looked about him with a smile which did not leave his face. "'Why is that fellow in front of the line?' shouted somebody at him again. "'To the left! Keep to the right!' the men shouted to him. Pierre went to the right, and unexpectedly encountered one of Ryevsky's adjutants whom he knew. The adjutant looked angrily at him, evidently also intending to shout at him, but on recognizing him he nodded. "'How have you got here?' he said and galloped on. Pierre, feeling out of place there, having nothing to do and afraid of getting in someone's way again, galloped after the adjutant. "'What's happening here? May I come with you?' he asked. "'One moment, one moment,' replied the adjutant, and riding up to a stout colonel who was standing in the meadow, he gave him some message and then addressed Pierre. "'Why have you come here, Count?' he asked with a smile. "'Still inquisitive?' "'Yes, yes,' assented Pierre. But the adjutant turned his horse about and rode on. "'Here it's tolerable,' said he, "'but with Bagradian on the left flank they're getting it frightfully hot.' "'Really?' said Pierre. Where is that? Come along with me to our knoll. We can get a view from there, and in our battery it is still bearable," said the adjutant. Will you come? Yes, I'll come with you," replied Pierre, looking round for his groom. It was only now that he noticed wounded men staggering along or being carried on stretchers. On that very meadow he had ridden over the day before, a soldier was lying athwart the rows of scented hay with his head thrown awkwardly back and his shako off. "'Why haven't they carried him away?' Pierre was about to ask, but seeing the stern expression of the adjutant who was also looking that way, he checked himself. Pierre did not find his groom, and rode along the hollow with the adjutant to Ryevsky's redoubt. His horse lagged behind the adjutant's and jolted him at every step. "'You don't seem to be used to riding, Count,' remarked the adjutant. "'No, it's not that.' But her actions seem so jerky," said Pierre in a puzzled tone. "'Why, she's wounded,' said the adjutant. "'In the off foreleg above the knee. A bullet, no doubt. I congratulate you, Count, on your baptism of fire.'" Having ridden in the smoke past the Sixth Corps, behind the artillery which had been moved forward and was in action, deafening them with the noise of firing, they came to a small wood. There it was cool and quiet with a scent of autumn. Pierre and the adjutant dismounted and walked up the hill on foot. "'Is the general here?' asked the adjutant on reaching the knoll. "'He was here a minute ago, but has just gone that way,' someone told him, pointing to the right. The adjutant looked at Pierre as if puzzled what to do with him now. "'Don't trouble about me,' said Pierre. "'I'll go up onto the knoll, if I may.' "'Yes, do. You'll see everything from there.' and it's less dangerous, and I'll come for you." Pierre went to the battery and the adjutant rode on. 
They did not meet again, and only much later did Pierre learn that he lost an arm that day. The knoll to which Pierre ascended was that famous one, afterwards known to the Russians as the Knoll Battery, or Rayevsky's Redoubt, and to the French as La Grande Redoute, La Fatale Redoute, La Redoute du Centre, around which tens of thousands fell, and which the French regarded as the key to the whole position. This redoubt consisted of a knoll, on three sides of which trenches had been dug. Within the entrenchment stood ten guns that were being fired through the openings in the earthwork. In line with the knoll on both sides stood other guns which also fired incessantly. A little behind the guns stood infantry. When ascending that knoll Pierre had no notion that this spot, on which small trenches had been dug and from which a few guns were firing, was the most important point of the battle. On the contrary, just because he happened to be there, he thought it was one of the least significant parts of the field. Having reached the knoll, Pierre sat down at one end of a trench surrounding the battery, and gazed at what was going on around him with an unconsciously happy smile. Occasionally he rose and walked about the battery, still with that same smile, trying not to obstruct the soldiers who were loading, hauling the guns, and continually running past him with bags and charges. The guns of that battery were being fired continually one after another with a deafening roar, enveloping the whole neighborhood in powder smoke. In contrast with the dread felt by the infantrymen placed in support, here in the battery, where a small number of men busy at their work were separated from the rest by a trench, everyone experienced a common and, as it were, family feeling of animation. The intrusion of Pierre's non-military figure in a white hat made an unpleasant impression at first. The soldiers looked askance at him with surprise, and even alarm as they went past him. The senior artillery officer, a tall, long-legged, pock-marked man, moved over to Pierre as if to see the action of the farthest gun and looked at him with curiosity. A young round-faced officer, quite a boy still and evidently only just out of the cadet college, who was zealously commanding the two guns entrusted to him, addressed Pierre sternly. "'Sir,' he said, "'permit me to ask you to stand aside. You must not be here.' The soldiers shook their heads disapprovingly as they looked at Pierre but when they had convinced themselves that this man in the white hat was doing no harm, but either sat quietly on the slope of the trench with a shy smile, or politely making way for the soldiers, paced up and down the battery under fire as calmly as if he were on a boulevard, their feeling of hostile distrust gradually began to change into a kindly and bantering sympathy, such as soldiers feel for their dogs, cocks, goats, and in general for the animals that live with the regiment. The men soon accepted Pierre into their family, adopted him, gave him a nickname, Our Gentleman, and made kindly fun of him among themselves. A shell tore up the earth two paces from Pierre, and he looked around with a smile as he brushed from his clothes some earth it had thrown up. "'And how's it you're not afraid, sir, really now?' a red-faced, broad-shouldered soldier asked Pierre, with a grin that disclosed a set of sound white teeth. "'Are you afraid, then?' said Pierre. "'What else do you expect?' answered the soldier. "'She has no mercy, you know. When she comes spluttering down, out go your innards. One can't help being afraid,' he said, laughing. Several of the men, with bright, kindly faces, stopped beside Pierre. 
they seemed not to have expected him to talk like anybody else, and the discovery that he did so delighted them. "'It's the business of us soldiers, but in a gentleman it's wonderful. There's a gentleman for you!' "'To your places!' cried the young officer to the men gathered round Pierre. The young officer was evidently exercising his duties for the first or second time, and therefore treated both his superiors and the men with great precision and formality. The booming cannonade and the fusillade of musketry were growing more intense over the whole field, especially to the left where Bagration's fleshes were, but where Pierre was the smoke of the firing made it almost impossible to distinguish anything. Moreover, his whole attention was engrossed by watching the family circle, separated from all else, formed by the men in the battery. His first unconscious feeling of joyful animation produced by the sights and sounds of the battlefield was now replaced by another, especially since he had seen that soldier lying alone in the hayfield. Now, seated on the slope of the trench, he observed the faces of those around him. By ten o'clock some twenty men had already been carried away from the battery. Two guns were smashed and cannonballs fell more and more frequently on the battery, and spent bullets buzzed and whistled around. But the men in the battery seemed not to notice this, and merry voices and jokes were heard on all sides. "'A live one!' shouted a man as a whistling shell approached. "'Not this way! To the infantry!' added another with loud laughter, seeing the shell fly past and fall into the ranks of the supports. "'Are you bowing to a friend, eh?' remarked another, chafing a peasant who ducked low as a cannonball flew over. Several soldiers gathered by the wall of the trench, looking out to see what was happening in front. "'They've withdrawn the front line. It has retired,' said they, pointing over the earthwork. "'Mind your own business,' an old sergeant shouted at them. "'If they've retired, it's because there's work for them to do farther back.' And the sergeant taking one of the men by the shoulders, gave him a shove with his knee. This was followed by a burst of laughter. "'To the fifth gun! Wheel it up!' came shouts from one side. "'Now then, all together, like bargees!' rose the merry voices of those who were moving the gun. "'Oh, she nearly knocked her gentleman's hat off!' cried the red-faced humorist, showing his teeth chafing Pierre. "'Awkward baggage!' he added reproachfully to a cannon-ball that struck a cannon-wheel and a man's leg. "'Now then, you foxes!' said another, laughing at some militiamen who, stooping low, entered the battery to carry away the wounded man. "'So, this gruel isn't to your taste? Oh, you crows! You're scared!' they shouted at the militiamen who stood hesitating before the man whose leg had been torn off. "'There, lads! Oh, oh!' they mimicked the peasants. They don't like it at all!" Pierre noticed that after every ball that hit the redoubt, and after every loss, the liveliness increased more and more. As the flames of the fire hidden within come more and more vividly and rapidly from an approaching thundercloud, so, as if in opposition to what was taking place, the lightning of hidden fire growing more and more intense glowed in the faces of these men. Pierre did not look at the battlefield and was not concerned to know what was happening there. He was entirely absorbed in watching this fire which burned ever more brightly, and which he felt was flaming up in some way in his own soul. At ten o'clock the infantry that had been among the bushes in front of the battery and along the Kamenka streamlet retreated. 
From the battery they could be seen running back past it carrying their wounded on their muskets. A general with his suite came to the battery, and after speaking to the colonel gave Pierre an angry look, and went away again having ordered the infantry supports behind the battery to lie down, so as to be less exposed to fire. After this, from amid the ranks of infantry to the right of the battery came the sound of a drum and shouts of command, and from the battery one saw how those ranks of infantry moved forward. Pierre looked over the wall of the trench and was particularly struck by a pale young officer who, letting his sword hang down, was walking backwards and kept glancing uneasily around. The ranks of the infantry disappeared amid the smoke, but their long-drawn shout and rapid musketry firing could still be heard. A few minutes later crowds of wounded men and stretcher-bearers came back from that direction. Projectiles began to fall still more frequently in the battery. Several men were lying about who had not been removed. Around the cannon the men moved still more briskly and busily. No one any longer took notice of Pierre. Once or twice he was shouted at for being in the way. The senior officer moved with big, rapid strides from one gun to another with a frowning face. The young officer, with his face still more flushed, commanded the men more scrupulously than ever. The soldiers handed up the charges, turned, loaded, and did their business with strained smartness. They gave little jumps as they walked, as though they were on springs. The storm-cloud had come upon them, and in every face the fire which Pierre had watched kindle burned up brightly. Pierre standing beside the commanding officer. The young officer, his hand to his shako, ran up to his superior. I have the honor to report, sir, that only eight rounds are left. Are we to continue firing?" he asked. "'Grape-shot!' the senior shouted, without answering the question, looking over the wall of the trench. Suddenly something happened. The young officer gave a gasp, and bending double, sat down on the ground like a bird shot on the wing. Everything became strange, confused, and misty in Pierre's eyes. One cannonball after another whistled by and struck the earthwork, a soldier, or a gun. Pierre, who had not noticed these sounds before, now heard nothing else. On the right of the battery soldiers shouting, Hurrah! were running not forwards but backwards, it seemed to Pierre. A cannonball struck the very end of the earthwork by which he was standing, crumbling down the earth. A black ball flashed before his eyes and at the same instant plumped into something. Some militiamen who were entering the battery ran back. "'All with grape-shot!' shouted the officer. The sergeant ran up to the officer, and in a frightened whisper informed him, as a butler at dinner informs his master that there is no more of some wine he asked for, that there were no more charges. "'The scoundrels! What are they doing?' shouted the officer, turning to Pierre. The officer's face was red and perspiring, and his eyes glittered under his frowning brow. "'Run to the reserves and bring up the ammunition boxes!' he yelled, angrily avoiding Pierre with his eyes and speaking to his men. "'I'll go,' said Pierre. The officer, without answering him, strode across to the opposite side. "'Don't fire! Wait!' he shouted. The man who had been ordered to go for ammunition stumbled against Pierre. Uh, sir, this is no place for you," said he, and ran down the slope. Pierre ran after him, 
avoiding the spot where the young officer was sitting. One cannonball, another, and a third flew over him, falling in front, beside, and behind him. Pierre ran down the slope. "'Where am I going?' he suddenly asked himself when he was already near the green ammunition wagons. He halted irresolutely, not knowing whether to return or go on. Suddenly a terrible concussion threw him backwards to the ground. At the same instant he was dazzled by a great flash of flame, and immediately a deafening roar, crackling and whistling made his ears tingle. When he came to himself he was sitting on the ground leaning on his hands. The ammunition wagons he had been approaching no longer existed, only charred green boards and rags littered the scorched grass, and a horse, dangling fragments of its shaft behind it, galloped past, while another horse lay like Pierre on the ground, uttering prolonged and piercing cries. End of Book Ten, Chapter Thirty One Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Two of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Two Beside himself with terror, Pierre jumped up and ran back to the battery, as to the only refuge from the horrors that surrounded him. On entering the earthwork he noticed that there were men doing something there, but that no shots were being fired from the battery. He had no time to realize who these men were. He saw the senior officer lying on the earth wall with his back turned, as if he were examining something down below, and that one of the soldiers he had noticed before was struggling forward shouting, "'Brothers!' and trying to free himself from some men who were holding him by the arm. He also saw something else that was strange but he had not time to realize that the colonel had been killed, that the soldier shouting, "'Brothers!' was a prisoner, and that another man had been bayoneted in the back before his eyes. For hardly had he run into the redoubt before a thin, sallow-faced, perspiring man in a blue uniform rushed on him with a sword in hand, shouting something. Instinctively guarding against the shock, for they had been running together at full speed before they saw one another, Pierre put out his hands and seized the man a French officer, by the shoulder with one hand and by the throat with the other. The officer, dropping his sword, seized Pierre by his collar. For some seconds they gazed with frightened eyes at one another's unfamiliar faces, and both were perplexed at what they had done and what they were to do next. "'Am I taken prisoner, or have I taken him prisoner?' each was thinking. But the French officer was evidently more inclined to think he had been taken prisoner because Pierre's strong hand, impelled by instinctive fear, squeezed his throat ever tighter and tighter. The Frenchman was about to say something, when just above their heads, terrible and low, a cannonball whistled, and it seemed to Pierre that the French officer's head had been torn off, so swiftly had he ducked it. Pierre too bent his head and let his hands fall. Without further thought as to who had taken whom prisoner, the Frenchman ran back to the battery, and Pierre ran down the slope, stumbling over the dead and wounded, who, it seemed to him, caught at his feet. But before he reached the foot of the knoll he was met by a dense crowd of Russian soldiers, who, stumbling, tripping up and shouting, ran merrily and wildly toward the battery. This was the attack for which Ormolov claimed the credit 
declaring that only his courage and good luck made such a feat possible. It was the attack in which he was said to have thrown some St. George's crosses he had in his pocket into the battery for the first soldiers to take who got there. The French who had occupied the battery fled, and our troops shouting, Hurrah! pursued them so far beyond the battery that it was difficult to call them back. The prisoners were brought down from the battery, and among them was a wounded French general, whom the officers surrounded. Crowds of wounded, some known to Pierre and some unknown, Russian and French, with faces distorted by suffering, walked, crawled, and were carried on stretchers from the battery. Pierre again went up onto the knoll where he had spent over an hour, and of that family circle which had received him as a member he did not find a single one. There were many dead whom he did not know, but some he recognized. The young officer still sat in the same way, bent double, in a pool of blood at the edge of the earth wall. The red-faced man was still twitching, but they did not carry him away. Pierre ran down the slope once more. Now they will stop it. Now they will be horrified at what they have done, he thought, aimlessly going toward a crowd of stretcher-bearers moving from the battlefield. But behind the veil of smoke the sun was still high, and in front and especially to the left, near Semenovsk, something seemed to be seething in the smoke, and the roar of cannon and musketry did not diminish, but even increased to desperation, like a man who, straining himself, shrieks with all his remaining strength. End of Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Two Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Three Of War and Peace, Volume Three By Leo Tolstoy, Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Three the chief action of the Battle of Borodino was fought within the seven thousand feet between Borodino and Bagration's fletches. Beyond that space there was, on the one side, a demonstration made by the Russians with Ovarov's cavalry at midday, and on the other side, beyond Utitsa, Poniatowski's collision with Tuchkov. But these two were detached and feeble actions in comparison with what took place in the center of the battlefield. On the field between Borodino and the fletches, Beside the wood, the chief action of the day took place on an open space visible from both sides, and was fought in the simplest and most artless way. The battle began on both sides with a cannonade from several hundred guns. Then, when the whole field was covered with smoke, two divisions, Campans and Dessays, advanced from the French right, while Murat's troops advanced on Borodino from their left. From the Chevardino Redoubt, where Napoleon was standing, the fleshes were two-thirds of a mile away, and it was more than a mile as the crow flies to Borodino, so that Napoleon could not see what was happening there, especially as the smoke mingling with the mist hid the whole locality. The soldiers of Dessay's division advancing against the fleshes could only be seen till they had entered the hollow that lay between them and the fleshes. As soon as they had descended into that hollow, the smoke of the guns and musketry on the fleshes grew so dense that it covered the whole approach on that side of it. Through the smoke glimpses could be caught of something black, probably men, and at times the glint of bayonets. But whether they were moving or stationary, whether they were French or Russian, could not be discovered from the Chevardino redoubt. 
The sun had risen brightly, and its slanting rays struck straight into Napoleon's face, as shading his eyes with his hand he looked at the fleshes. The smoke spread out before them, and at times it looked as if the smoke were moving, at times as if the troops moved. Sometimes shouts were heard through the firing, but it was impossible to tell what was being done there. Napoleon, standing on the knoll, looked through a field-glass, and in its small circlet saw smoke and men, sometimes his own and sometimes Russians. But when he looked again with the naked eye, he could not tell where what he had seen was. He descended the knoll and began walking up and down before it. Occasionally he stopped, listening to the firing, and gazed intently at the battlefield. But not only was it impossible to make out what was happening from where he was standing down below, or from the knoll above on which some of his generals had taken their stand, but even from the fleshes themselves, in which by this time there were now Russian and now French soldiers, alternately or together, dead, wounded, alive, frightened, or maddened, even at those fleshes themselves it was impossible to make out what was taking place. There for several hours, amid incessant cannon and musketry fire, now Russians were seen alone, now Frenchmen alone, now infantry, and now cavalry. They appeared, fired, fell, collided, not knowing what to do with one another, screamed and ran back again. From the battlefield, adjutants he had sent out, and orderlies from his marshals, kept galloping up to Napoleon with reports of the progress of the action, but all these reports were false, both because it was impossible in the heat of battle to say what was happening at any given moment, and because many of the adjutants did not go to the actual place of conflict, but reported what they had heard from others. And also because while an adjutant was riding more than a mile to Napoleon, circumstances changed, and the news he brought was already becoming false. Thus an adjutant galloped up from Murat with tidings that Borodino had been occupied, and the bridge over the Kolocha was in the hands of the French. The adjutant asked whether Napoleon wished the troops to cross it. Napoleon gave orders that the troops should form up on the farther side and wait. But before that order was given, almost as soon, in fact, as the adjutant had left Borodino, the bridge had been retaken by the Russians and burned, in the very skirmish at which Pierre had been present at the beginning of the battle. An adjutant galloped up from the fleshes with a pale and frightened face and reported to Napoleon that their attack had been repulsed, Campan wounded and Devaux killed, yet at the very time the adjutant had been told that the French had been repulsed, the fleshes had in fact been recaptured by other French troops, and Devaux was alive and only slightly bruised. On the basis of these necessarily untrustworthy reports Napoleon gave his orders, which had either been executed before he gave them, or could not be and were not executed. The marshals and generals, who were nearer to the field of battle, but like Napoleon did not take part in the actual fighting, and only occasionally went within musket range, made their own arrangements without asking Napoleon, and issued orders where and in what direction to fire, and where cavalry should gallop and infantry should run. But even their orders, like Napoleon's, were seldom carried out, and then but partially. For the most part, things happened contrary to their orders. Soldiers ordered to advance ran back on meeting grape-shot. Soldiers ordered to remain where they were, suddenly seeing Russians unexpectedly before them, sometimes rushed back and sometimes forward. 
and the cavalry dashed without orders in pursuit of the flying rushes. In this way two cavalry regiments galloped through the Semenovs' collow, and as soon as they reached the top of the incline turned round and galloped full speed back again. The infantry moved in the same way, sometimes running to quite other places than those they were ordered to go to. All orders as to where and when to move the guns, when to send infantry to shoot or horsemen to ride down the Russian infantry, all such orders were given by the officers on the spot nearest to the units concerned, without asking either Ney, Devaux, or Murat, much less Napoleon. They did not fear getting into trouble for not fulfilling orders, or for acting on their own initiative, for in battle what is at stake is what is dearest to man, his own life. And it sometimes seems that safety lies in running back, sometimes in running forward, and these men, who were right in the heat of the battle, acted according to the mood of the moment. In reality, however, all these movements forward and backward did not improve or alter the position of the troops. All their rushing and galloping at one another did little harm. The harm of disablement and death was caused by the balls and bullets that flew over the fields on which these men were floundering about. As soon as they left the place where the balls and bullets were flying about, their superiors, located in the background, reformed them and brought them under discipline, and under the influence of that discipline led them back to the zone of fire, where, under the influence of fear and death, they lost their discipline and rushed about according to the chance promptings of the throng. End of Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Three Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Four of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Four Napoleon's generals, Devaux, Ney, and Murat, who were near that region of fire and sometimes even entered it, repeatedly led into it huge masses of well-ordered troops. But contrary to what had always happened in their former battles, instead of the news they expected of the enemy's flight, these orderly masses returned thence as disorganized and terrified mobs. The generals reformed them, but their numbers constantly decreased. In the middle of the day Marat sent his adjutant to Napoleon to demand reinforcements. Napoleon sat at the foot of the knoll drinking punch, when Marat's adjutant galloped up with an assurance that the Russians would be routed if His Majesty would let him have another division. "'Reinforcements?' said Napoleon, in a tone of stern surprise, looking at the adjutant, a handsome lad with long black curls arranged like Marat's own, as though he did not understand his words. "'Reinforcements!' thought Napoleon to himself. "'How can they need reinforcements when they already have half the army directed against a weak, unentrenched Russian wing?' "'Tell the King of Naples,' he said sternly, "'that it is not noon yet, and I don't yet see my chessboard clearly. Go!' The handsome young adjutant with the long hair sighed deeply without removing his hand from his hat and galloped back to where men were being slaughtered. Napoleon rose, and having summoned Colincourt and Berthier began talking to them about matters unconnected with the battle. In the midst of this conversation, which was beginning to interest Napoleon, Berthier's eyes turned to look at a general with a suite, who was galloping toward the knoll on a lathering horse. 
It was Beliard. Having dismounted, he went up to the Emperor with rapid strides, and in a loud voice began boldly demonstrating the necessity of sending reinforcements. He swore on his honor that the Russians were lost if the Emperor would give another division. Napoleon shrugged his shoulders, and continued to pace up and down without replying. Belliard began talking loudly and eagerly to the generals of the suite around him. "'You are very fiery, Belliard,' said Napoleon, when he again came up to the general. "'In the heat of a battle it is easy to make a mistake. Go and have another look, and then come back to me.' Before Belliard was out of sight, a messenger from another part of the battlefield galloped up. "'Now then, what do you want?' asked Napoleon, in the tone of a man irritated at being continually disturbed. "'Sire, the prince,' began the adjutant, "'asks for reinforcements,' said Napoleon, with an angry gesture. The adjutant bent his head affirmatively and began to report, but the emperor turned from him, took a couple of steps, stopped, came back, and called Berthier. "'We must give reserves,' he said, moving his arms slightly apart. "'Who do you think should be sent there?' he asked of Berthier, whom he subsequently termed, "'That gosling I have made an eagle.' "'Send Claparet's division, sire,' replied Berthier, who knew all the division's regiments and battalions by heart. Napoleon nodded assent. The adjutant galloped to Claparet's division, and a few minutes later the young guard stationed behind the knoll moved forward. Napoleon gazed silently in that direction. No, he suddenly said to Berthier, I can't send Claparet. Send Friant's division. Though there was no advantage in sending Friant's division instead of Claparet's, and even an obvious inconvenience and delay in stopping Claparet and sending Friant now, the order was carried out exactly. Napoleon did not notice that, in regard to his army, he was playing the part of a doctor who hinders by his medicines, a role he so justly understood and condemned. Friant's division disappeared as the others had done into the smoke of the battlefield. From all sides adjutants continued to arrive at a gallop, and as if by agreement all said the same thing. They all asked for reinforcements, and all said that the Russians were holding their positions and maintaining a hellish fire under which the French army was melting away. Napoleon sat on a campstool, wrapped in thought. Monsieur de Bosset, the man so fond of travel, having fasted since morning, came up to the Emperor, and ventured respectfully to suggest lunch to His Majesty. "'I hope I may now congratulate Your Majesty on a victory,' said he. Napoleon silently shook his head in negation. Assuming the negation to refer only to the victory and not to the lunch, Monsieur de Bosset ventured with respectful jocularity to remark that there is no reason for not having lunch when one can get it. "'Go away.' exclaimed Napoleon suddenly and morosely and turned aside. A beatific smile of regret, repentance, and ecstasy beamed on Monsieur de Bosset's face, and he glided away to the other generals. Napoleon was experiencing a feeling of depression, like that of an ever-lucky gambler, who, after recklessly flinging money about and always winning, suddenly, just when he has calculated all the chances of the game, finds that the more he considers his play, the more surely he loses. His troops were the same, his generals the same, the same preparations had been made, the same dispositions, 
and the same proclamation court et energique, he himself was still the same. He knew that, and knew that he was now even more experienced and skilful than before. Even the enemy was the same as at Austerlitz and Friedland, yet the terrible stroke of his arm had supernaturally become impotent. All the old methods that had been unfailingly crowned with success, the concentration of batteries on one point, an attack by reserves to break the enemy's line, and a cavalry attack by the men of iron, all these methods had already been employed, yet not only was there no victory, but from all sides came the same news of generals killed and wounded, of reinforcements needed, of the impossibility of driving back the Russians, and of disorganization among his own troops. Formerly, after he had given two or three orders and uttered a few phrases, marshals and adjutants had come galloping up with congratulations and happy faces, announcing the trophies taken, the corps of prisoners, bundles of enemy eagles and standards, cannons and stores. And Moral had only begged leave to loose the cavalry to gather in the baggage-wagons. So it had been at Lodi, Marengo, Arcola, Jena, Austerlitz, Wagram, and so on. But now something strange was happening to his troops. Despite news of the capture of the fleshes, Napoleon saw that this was not the same, not at all the same as what had happened in his former battles. He saw that what he was feeling was felt by all the men about him experienced in the art of war. All their faces looked dejected, and they all shunned one another's eyes. Only a de Bosset could fail to grasp the meaning of what was happening. But Napoleon, with his long experience of war, well knew the meaning of a battle not gained by the attacking side in eight hours after all efforts had been expended. He knew that it was a lost battle, and that the least accident might now, with the fight balanced on such a strained center, destroy him and his army. When he ran his mind over the whole of this strange Russian campaign, in which not one battle had been won, and in which not a flag or cannon or army corps had been captured in two months. When he looked at the concealed depression on the faces around him and heard reports of the Russians still holding their ground, a terrible feeling like a nightmare took possession of him, and all the unlucky accidents that might destroy him occurred to his mind. The Russians might fall on his left wing, might break through his center, he himself might be killed by a stray cannonball. All this was possible. In former battles he had only considered the possibilities of success, but now innumerable unlucky chances presented themselves, and he expected them all. Yes, it was like a dream in which a man fancies that a ruffian is coming to attack him, and raises his arm to strike that ruffian a terrible blow which he knows should annihilate him, but then feels that his arm drops powerless and limp like a rag, and the horror of unavoidable destruction seizes him in his helplessness. The news that the Russians were attacking the left flank of the French army aroused that horror in Napoleon. He sat silently on a camp-stool below the knoll, with head bowed and elbows on his knees. Bertie approached and suggested that they should ride along the line to ascertain the position of affairs. "'What? What did you say?' asked Napoleon. "'Yes. Tell them to bring me my horse.' He mounted and rode towards Semenovsk. Amid the powder-smoke, slowly dispersing over the whole space through which Napoleon rode, horses and men were lying in pools of blood, singly or in heaps. 
Neither Napoleon nor any of his generals had ever before seen such horrors, or so many slain in such a small area. The roar of guns, that had not ceased for ten hours, wearied the ear and gave a peculiar significance to the spectacle, as music does to tableau vivant. Napoleon rode up the high ground at Semenovsk, and through the smoke saw ranks of men in uniforms of a color unfamiliar to him. They were Russians. The Russians stood in serried ranks behind Semenovsk village and its knoll, and their guns boomed incessantly along their line and sent forth clouds of smoke. It was no longer a battle, it was a continuous slaughter, which could be of no avail either to the French or the Russians. Napoleon stopped his horse and again fell into the reverie from which Berthier had aroused him. He could not stop what was going on before him and around him and was supposed to be directed by him and to depend on him. And from its lack of success, this affair, for the first time, seemed to him unnecessary and horrible. One of the generals rode up to Napoleon and ventured to offer to lead the old guard into action. Ney and Berthier, standing near Napoleon, exchanged looks and smiled contemptuously at this general's senseless offer. Napoleon bowed his head and remained silent a long time. "'At eight hundred leagues from France I will not have my guard destroyed,' he said, and turning his horse rode back to Chevardino. End of Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Four Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Five of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Five on the rug-covered bench where Pierre had seen him in the morning sat Kutuzov, his grey head hanging, his heavy body relaxed. He gave no orders, but only assented to or dissented from what others suggested. "'Yes, yes, do that,' he replied to various proposals. "'Yes, yes, go, dear boy, and have a look,' he would say to one or another of those about him, or, "'No, don't, we'd better wait.' He listened to the reports that were brought him, and gave directions when his subordinates demanded that of him. But when listening to the reports, it seemed as if he were not interested in the import of the words spoken, but rather in something else, in the expression of face and tone of voice of those who were reporting. By long years of military experience he knew, and with the wisdom of age understood, that it is impossible for one man to direct hundreds of thousands of others struggling with death, and he knew that the result of a battle is decided not by the orders of a commander-in-chief, nor the place where the troops are stationed, nor by the number of cannon or of slaughtered men, but by that intangible force called the spirit of the army. And he watched this force and guided it in as far as that was in his power. Kutuzov's general expression was one of concentrated quiet attention, and his face wore a strained look as if he found it difficult to master the fatigue of his old and feeble body. At eleven o'clock they brought him news that the fleshes captured by the French had been retaken, but that Prince Bagradian was wounded. Kutuzov groaned and swayed his head. "'Ride over to Prince Peter Ivanovich and find out about it exactly,' he said to one of his adjutants, 
and then turned to the Duke of Württemberg, who was standing behind him. "'Will Your Highness please take command of the First Army?' Soon after the Duke's departure, before he could possibly have reached Semenovsk, his adjutant came back from him and told Kutuzov that the Duke asked for more troops. Kutuzov made a grimace and sent an order to Dokturov to take over the command of the First Army, and a request to the Duke, whom he said he could not spare at such an important moment, to return to him. When they brought him news that Murat had been taken prisoner, and the staff officers congratulated him, Kutuzov smiled. "'Wait a little, gentlemen,' said he. The battle is won, and there is nothing extraordinary in the capture of Marat. Still, it is better to wait before we rejoice." But he sent an adjutant to take the news round the army. When Sherbinin came galloping from the left flank with news that the French had captured the Fleshes and the village of Semenovsk, Kutuzov, guessing by the sounds of the battle and by Sherbinin's looks that the news was bad, rose as if to stretch his legs, and taking Sherbinin's arm, led him aside. "'Go, my dear fellow,' he said to Ermolov, "'and see whether something can't be done.' Kutuzov was in Gorky, near the center of the Russian position. The attack directed by Napoleon against our left flank had been several times repulsed. In the center, the French had not got beyond Borodino, and on their left flank Uvarov's cavalry had put the French to flight. Toward three o'clock the French attack ceased. On the faces of all who came from the field of battle, and of those who stood around him, Kutuzov noticed an expression of extreme tension. He was satisfied with the day's success, a success exceeding his expectations, but the old man's strength was failing him. Several times his head dropped low as if it were falling, and he dozed off. Dinner was brought him. Adjutant General Volzogen, the man who, when riding past Prince Andrew, had said, "'The war should be extended widely,' and whom Bagradian so detested, rode up while Kutuzov was at dinner. Volzogen had come from Barclay de Tolly to report on the progress of affairs on the left flank. The sagacious Barclay de Tolly, seeing crowds of wounded men running back and the disordered rear of the army, weighed all the circumstances, concluded that the battle was lost, and sent his favorite officer to the commander-in-chief with that news. Kutuzov was chewing a piece of roast chicken with difficulty, and glanced at Volzogen with eyes that brightened under their puckering lids. Volzogen, nonchalantly stretching his legs, approached Kutuzov with a half-contemptuous smile on his lips, scarcely touching the peak of his cap. He treated His Serene Highness with a somewhat affected nonchalance, intended to show that, as a highly trained military man, he left it to Russians to make an idol of this useless old man, but that he knew whom he was dealing with. Der Alte Herr, as in their own set the Germans called Kutuzov, is making himself very comfortable, thought Volzogen, and, looking severely at the dishes in front of Kutuzov, he began to report to the old gentleman the position of affairs on the left flank as Barclay had ordered him to, and as he himself had seen and understood it. "'All the points of our position are in the enemy's hands, and we cannot dislodge them for lack of troops. The men are running away, and it is impossible to stop them,' he reported. Kutuzov ceased chewing, and fixed an astonished gaze on Volzogen, as if not understanding what was said to him. Volzogen, noticing the old gentleman's agitation, said with a smile, 
I have not considered it right to conceal from Your Serene Highness what I have seen. The troops are in complete disorder." "'You have seen! You have seen!' Kutuzov shouted. Frowning and rising quickly, he went up to Volzogen. "'How! How dare you!' he shouted, choking and making a threatening gesture with his trembling arms. "'How dare you, sir, say that to me! You know nothing about it! Tell General Barclay from me that his information is incorrect, and that the real course of the battle is better known to me, the Commander-in-Chief, than to him!' Volzogen was about to make a rejoinder, but Kutuzov interrupted him. "'The enemy has been repulsed on the left and defeated on the right flank. If you have seen amiss, sir, do not allow yourself to say what you don't know. Be so good as to write to General Barclay and inform him of my firm intention to attack the enemy tomorrow,' said Kutuzov sternly. All were silent, and the only sound audible was the heavy breathing of the panting old general. "'They are repulsed everywhere, for which I thank God and our brave army. The enemy is beaten, and tomorrow we shall drive him from the sacred soil of Russia,' said Kutuzov, crossing himself, and he suddenly sobbed as his eyes filled with tears. Volsogen, shrugging his shoulders and curling his lips, stepped silently aside, marveling at the old gentleman's conceited stupidity. "'Ah, here he is, my hero,' said Kutuzov to a portly, handsome, dark-haired general who was just ascending the knoll. This was Raevsky, who had spent the whole day at the most important part of the field of Borodino. Raevsky reported that the troops were firmly holding their ground, and that the French no longer ventured to attack. After hearing him, Kutuzov said in French, "'Then you do not think, like some others, that we must retreat?' "'On the contrary, Your Highness. In indecisive actions it is always the most stubborn who remain victors,' replied Raevsky. "'And, in my opinion—Kesarov!' Kutuzov called to his adjutant. Sit down and write out the order of the day for tomorrow. And you, he continued, addressing another, write along the line and announce that tomorrow we attack. While Kutuzov was talking to Raevsky and dictating the order of the day, Volzogen returned from Barclay and said that General Barclay wished to have written confirmation of the order the field marshal had given. Kutuzov, without looking at Volzogen, gave directions for the order to be written out which the former commander-in-chief, to avoid personal responsibility, very judiciously wished to receive. And by means of that mysterious, indefinable bond which maintains throughout an army one and the same temper, known as the spirit of the army, and which constitutes the sinew of war, Kutuzov's words, his order for a battle next day, immediately became known from one end of the army to the other. It was far from being the same words or the same order that reached the farthest links of that chain. The tales passing from mouth to mouth at different ends of the army did not even resemble what Kutuzov had said, but the sense of his words spread everywhere because what he said was not the outcome of cunning calculations, but of a feeling that lay in the commander-in-chief's soul as in that of every Russian. And on learning that tomorrow they were to attack the enemy, and hearing from the highest quarters a confirmation of what they wanted to believe, the exhausted, wavering men felt comforted and inspirited. End of Book 10, Chapter 35
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.